0: This is Horum with Horam's Quorum. My guest today is Paul Greywall, the chief legal officer at Coinbase. This is one of those interviews that builds and the pieces all come together. I think even people familiar with Paul's story will walk away with a deeper understanding of what makes politic and the first principles reasoning he uses professionally. Here's Paul. Great to see you. Thanks for joining.
1: Great to see you as well. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, so I want to hear about, you know, we talked last time about your workout routine and I know that you said that you've been very consistent with your workout routine for a number of years, but I'm curious, uh, what is your
1: workout routine today and how has it changed over the years? Yeah, it may not be very compelling, but I've tried to be at least consistent. Um, and, and, you know, exercise has been a big part of my life for a long time. These days I'm trying to do a mix of cardio at least three days a week, um, mixing a little weightlifting and then you know if I can squeeze in around a round of golf or a walk or um, a bike ride uh, it's been a pretty good pretty good week for me
0: and is it usually is it first thing in the morning
1: yeah for me like if the workout doesn't happen uh, at the beginning of the day it just doesn't happen so uh, I'm generally a pretty early morning person kind of always have been. so I like to just pop up out of bed don't even have a cup of coffee and just get right to it. And then um, once I'm done, you know, I feel like it's really time to start my day at that point. Yeah, I love that. And so has it changed
0: much at all over time? Has it just been kind of the the same formula?
1: Yeah, it has changed. Um, I think as I've gotten older, I've probably gotten better at being more consistent. I mean, to be super clear, um, earlier in my career, early in life with little kids and um managers and senior partners and others who didn't necessarily attach the same importance to my workout routine in the morning as i did (laughs) you know things sometimes fell apart Um, but i think i've gotten more consistent with it and then the other thing is you know as the body ages a couple things happen right like you get slower um hopefully you don't get too much weaker um but you know i've certainly um, placed much more emphasis on just maintaining my physical strength and um my endurance rather than, you know, literally sweating over whether I'm going to shave 10 seconds off my 5k time or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And is there anything else you do for wellness in general? Like,
0: you know, like how else do you uh, center yourself on a daily basis, weekly basis?
1: Yeah, I'm, I've, I've dabbled with um, meditation. I certainly do a fair amount of yoga. Um, I've never been sort of a um, dedicated mindfulness practice kind of guy. I, I, I have not been one who has been a regular attendee of religious services. So a lot of the things that a lot of people do that I think work really well for them have never really caught fire from me, even though I've always been a dabbler, always experimenting with something new, um, always trying you know, to find a new angle um, to get a little peace and, and calm in my day, especially before things start to get um, much less calm and much less peaceful um, before things are done.
0: Well, it's interesting because I think a number of people that I've talked to that know you well have observed about you is that you are very something that makes you special or different is that you maintain a pretty even keel and don't tend to get too elevated. Um, and you know, I know that you're a former litigator. I think you know how many how elevated some people can get in that space. So, what is you know, how do you do that then? If you don't have some sort of mild, mindfulness practice or something similar to that what is your approach or principles like how is it that you're able to
1: maintain this more or less even keel yeah i like the word elevated i'm gonna have to start using that because in my experience particularly in trial um and in litigation generally it's more agitated than elevated um i think for me well, it's it's um part of it's just you know i think my nature uh the way i grew up uh the way i've kind of approached things um outside of the practice of law that's probably given me a bit of um center and focus. And um at the same time, um, you know, I try to eat right, I try to sleep right, try to exercise, what we've just talked about, in ways that I think also literally lower the blood pressure, um, lower the temperature, and um hopefully allow me to, you know, focus on what needs to be done rather than how I feel about it. I deal with my feelings later. You know, my first priority in most situations is to figure out what we need to do. Yeah, that's good.
0: Uh, well, you know, I thought that, with that in mind, I feel like there's, I feel like your story, lots of aspects of your story are well known. I mean, you've got uh, a very substantial social media following. You've done a number of interviews over the years. I, I think a lot of people know your your story in large part. And I thought this would be an opportunity to get into all the other bits of your story that I think are are less. Sure. Of, uh, You know, what are the other uh, aspects of your life that have have facilitated the decisions that you've made? And so I thought we could maybe talk about that. So maybe we'll we'll start with a. I don't know, a contrarian version of or, of your story and, and start out sure. with it. So um, maybe the uh, jumping off point is uh, we'll, we'll talk about your experience. Uh, we can jump around chronologically. Uh, I know your clerkships have been important to you. We can double back to those for sure. Uh, but let's say you're, you're a law firm partner and you're trying to decide what comes next for you. And then somehow you make a transition that to a magistrate judge. Now, uh, I think a lot of aspects of that are, have already been told, but what, what are the aspects do you think are misunderstood or not understood about that move that you made?
1: Um. Well, one thing that uh, I think um, sometimes gets confused, at least when it comes to my decision uh, to become a magistrate judge in what, 2010 or so is that it somehow was part of some grand plan. There there was no plan. It certainly wasn't a plan that was grand um, at best. I think for him, I had a, uh, a rough sense, a nagging feeling, um, an instinct that uh, I would enjoy service as a judge, and I certainly had in the back of my mind so many of the positive formative experiences I had as a law clerk—not um, once, but twice—earlier uh, in my career, seeing how judges worked, what they did, but most importantly, um, what satisfaction they took from their day. I think that was the thing that stuck in my mind that for all the amazing and impressive lawyers and others that I'd worked with up up to that point in my career, you know, the two people who I really felt relished their day more than any other and really seemed to appreciate what um, they were able to do day in and day out in their professional life were the judges that I worked for. And so um, maybe simplistically, perhaps even naively, I thought, well, if I ever had the chance to be a judge myself, maybe I would relish my day and appreciate what I was able to do in that same way. And so that was really it.
0: And then, you know, in the, you know, you were definitely had the qualifications to be a district court judge. You know, why why is it that you accepted or went for a magistrate judge role?
1: Uh, because that was the opportunity that was given to me. <laughs> it was pretty simple. Um, you know, when I applied to be a magistrate judge, I wanna say I was probably 38. Um, so Relatively young, not not the youngest ever, but relatively young, and um, you know, for me, what increasingly became attractive about the opportunity was this idea I had in my mind, um, however imperfectly formed, that I could do something with that opportunity that maybe not a lot of other people had done. Um, you know, I think um, in a very hierarchical structure like the federal courts, we we naturally think about the Supreme Court justices first and foremost. They probably occupy you know, 90, 95% of our, um, of our mind space, they certainly consume 90 or 95% of the conversation and oxygen in any room of lawyers. But in, in the lower ranks of the of the judiciary, there are incredibly talented people doing incredibly important work. And and just as important, at least from my perspective, given incredible opportunities to be very creative, um, to do a lot of good for, for real, uh, for real people in real cases, but also to just you know, expand their professional skill set and have an impact on the world in ways that I think are relatively underappreciated. And so, as I thought more and more about what magistrate judges do, um, what I might be able to do in that role, and um, you know, the opportunity in front of me, just became more and more attractive to me. Um, and I cared less and less about whether it was um, sufficiently, you know, high enough or or high enough in the in the in the hierarchy. Um, to warrant you know professional praise and, and 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 command respect that we all i think want even if we're not always all willing to admit it so um yeah it was really that as much as anything else and um and at the same time you know at that stage in my personal and professional life i had done certain things that allowed me the opportunity um to change my life change my family's lifestyle in a way that um, um was significant going from being you know an equity partner in a major law firm to you know the lowest ranked junior judge in the in in, in the federal government um required a bit of um you know financial and and, and emotional gymnastics as well and i was ready to do all that
0: tell me about that. i think that's really huge and that's i think um a major obstacle for a lot of people at at, at every level uh to make decisions is you know being able to handle a drop in comp or a change in status yeah like you know how did you plan for that like how did you know that you're set up how did you know you're equipped to to make that work and what were the the tangible things that you did to put yourself in that position
1: yeah so i i think well let's start with the financial because in some ways that's that's more straightforward that's more mathematical um you know i at the point i became a magistrate judge um i had been an equity partner in an amla 100 firm um, the Howery firm it no longer exists, but in its day was, I think, well respected, and certainly was a place where I learned a lot about practicing law. Um, and you know, as a rising partner in those ranks, starting to attract clients, starting to attract really interesting cases. Um, you know, I was f- at a position at a point where, <clears throat> you know, I could afford a mortgage, I could afford private schools for my kids. I was fortunate enough, and remained fortunate enough. Um, To be married to a working professional. And so that provided a certain amount of flexibility as well. Um, And and at the same time, as I think a lot of us struggle with, um, as you know, the income rises and as the resources grow, so too do you know our appetites, our tastes um, and our preferences. And so um, one of the things that I think my wife and I were relatively successful at was figuring out what mattered in terms of our cost structure, where we spent our money. Uh, and figuring out what didn't, so that we were able to maintain a relatively um, relatively being the key word here, modest lifestyle that reflected, you know the way we earned and worked maybe five years before or even ten years before, even though things continued to go um, better and better for us in our careers. and And so with that sort of mental model in mind, um, you know it felt less scary for me when I was extended the offer to join the Northern district of California as a magistrate judge to accept it. Um, I was prepared, I think financially and otherwise to take the 91% pay cut. Um, that was required in order to pursue that opportunity. And at the same time, I you do know, have a certain amount of confidence that things are going to be just fine. There were plenty of people, um, who did just fine or, uh, living on the salary and compensation, uh, package of a, of a, of a junior federal judge. Uh, especially with a working spouse. And so that that helped. Um, And that made it possible for me to have the confidence to take that leap of faith. On the emotional side though, I actually found it to be a much bigger challenge because I think a lot of people, when they think of judges, they think immediately of instant respect, instant authority, uh, an ability to sort of literally command a room, right? In ways that are not possible uh, for most people. And that certainly was all true. At the same time, you know, uh, for me, you know, I was going from a place where I had associates, um, I had clients, as I mentioned before, um, and inside of a law firm, you really are, as, as, a, as a partner, um, the center of that universe, to a place in the courts where, as I said, literally, I was the youngest, the most junior, um, certainly the least known um, judge, not just in my court, but certainly nationally or you know, on a broader scale. And so you had to sort of adapt to like, oh, right, this is like taking any new job. I've got to start at the bottom and I've got to prove myself. And so, you know, once I sort of put it in those terms and really treated it as no different than, you know, when you get that first job, you know, working at McDonald's or as a junior associate or in whatever other situation, um, it just became easier for me to, you know, uh, uh, adapt and, um, and, and, and steel myself for, you know, that learning curve that comes with any new opportunity. And then in that role, I mean, what were the skills that you,
0: like, you probably had a set of skills that you came in expecting to hone. Um, so maybe you can tell me about, you know, how you, in fact, did hone those skills. And then what were the surprising skills that you didn't expect to hone that you picked up?
1: Yeah, so, so, so for judges, right, like, at least as I thought about it, um, you know, it, it's relatively obvious. You have to be pretty good at understanding how to take apart a case. You have to ha- be pretty good at analyzing complicated laws sifting through messy imperfect records, weighing and, and, and deliberating on you know credibility determinations all that stuff I think is relatively well understood and um, you know I was confident enough that I had at that point enough experience practicing law that I would be able to manage that transition well enough not to make a complete fool of myself. Um, what I think proved to be more challenging in that realm was the fact that you know my practice, up until that point, had been almost exclusively uh, focused on intellectual property disputes, patent trials, trade secret fights, um, uh, the occasional copyright or open source um, software license, and you know, on day one, um, as a magistrate judge, I was literally, um, not quite literally, but nearly literally, putting put, thrown out onto the bench, and. Um, Um, you know, thrown into a criminal law calendar where I had very experienced assistant United States attorneys and equally experienced federal public defenders um, all there to do their job and all expecting me to know what the heck I was doing. So there was a lot of um, learning by doing. And I think um, importantly, uh, a lot of humility required as to what I didn't know in that setting that that, that I had to embrace uh, in a pretty direct way um the part of the job though Kerm, where where i felt like i didn't appreciate what skills were going to be required in order to be effective and ultimately successful was managing the emotions of the moment right so in any dispute in court whether it's a fight over a you know software license or you know decisions to whether somebody's going to spend the next 13 months awaiting trial in jail or anything else you know all of those situations require i think a certain ability to navigate some pretty complicated emotions in the room. Um, and, you know, those emotions stem not just from the parties, you know, quite pretty easy to understand why a criminal defendant in that situation may be um, a bit agitated or elevated, <laughs> as, you, as you referenced earlier. Um, but the lawyers, right, they're worked up. Um, they've got a range of emotions to work through. Um, if you're picking a jury, you've got a bunch of people in there who don't want to be in there in the, for the most part. Don't understand what's happening they're confused they're anxious um in some cases they're a bit nervous and so you've got this range of emotions to navigate and manage and of course on day one and from that point going forward everyone assumes because you're wearing a black robe you know how to do that those skills i think were the biggest challenge for me to understand and then begin to start to learn and ultimately hopefully master um, as much as you know the hard skills have taken apart Ninth Circuit or Supreme Court precedent or, you know, resolving conflicting witness testimony.
0: So what were the, I guess there's two things to that. Like, what were the, we'll start with, what are the techniques that you learned over time? Like, how do you manage
1: people with, you know, just have strong opinions, strong feelings? Yeah. Well, I, 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 I mentioned one thing I think that is at the root of um, my approach, at least my intended approach, because I fall short of this <laughs> ideal uh, every single day. I think you start with humility. I think you start with uh, acknowledging, not just to yourself, although first with yourself, but ultimately to everyone around you, that while you know a bunch of stuff, there's a whole heck of a lot more that you don't know, almost in every case, right? And so um, I think that was helpful um, so that everyone understood that whatever their uh, emotional range was at that particular moment in time, I was going through my own range. And, And so I think it helped. To level the playing field in that way. The other thing I think that was very helpful was that, um, you know, I've never held myself out as the smartest lawyer or the most impressive trial advocate. Um, I've certainly practiced with, against, and had in front of me some of the some of the best, and, and I'm nowhere near that. I do think that one of the things that um, I've gotten pretty good at um, over time is figuring out how. To give people the comfort and um, the confidence that allows them to do their best work, and so whether that's a witness testifying who needs to be calmed, who needs to be assured that they're doing just fine, um, or in some cases corrected or, or directed in a way that helps them sort of elevate their performance, whether it's you know letting a lawyer know that um, even though uh, even though their argument is going nowhere fast. Um, they haven't lost, they haven't lost the moment entirely. There's still a chance for them to persuade me or persuade the jury uh, of, you know, of of their position. I think they're just little touches like that, that, um, help people feel, um, comfortable in their own skin. And and that's one of the things I've tried to do. Certainly I tried to do as a judge in the courtroom, but even in my current role and elsewhere that I think has proven to be relatively effective and and allows as i said you know the people around me to be the best at what what they're there to do uh which ultimately obviously benefits everyone
0: well i think the interesting balance that sounds you're striking is humility with confidence because you also have to show like hey there's a reason why you should be tuning into me because i will help you here um and so how did you establish that comp how how did you i guess, maybe avoid the outcome of say imposter syndrome like hey like i'm very skilled at ip but I, I, I'm not really knowledgeable the way that you know, uh, experienced U.S. attorney is about criminal matters. How did you establish that authority and, and, and ramp up and then and, and put yourself in a position where you have that credibility uh, while balancing that humility?
1: Yeah. Well, I do think that you can be confident and humble at the same time. And I think in many roles in the law, it's really important to be both, right? Because the fact of the matter is, um, whether it's in a courtroom or in a boardroom or anywhere else, like in most cases, people are looking at you as a lawyer, you as a judge, and expecting you to know exactly what you're doing, right? It's it's a lot like being in a surgical theater, right? You, you would, I think, um, be, be more than a little bit anxious to learn that your anesthesiologist was humble and at the same time lacked confidence in what he or he was doing, right? You want someone who knows uh, exactly what to do, even if they understand that there are many other roles um, that are important um, to a successful outcome. And so, you know, from, from my perspective, the number one thing that's, I think, helped is that I've shared my genuine curiosity in what others do. Um, it's am- amazing to me how in, in a single day, certainly in a courtroom, but I think in many other professional settings in the law, you know, we are just all so privileged to encounter, work with, in some cases work against, just some incredibly interesting people who have done some even more interesting things. And I think that um, even if you have a you know almost no basic or baseline understanding of what it is that a trust and estates lawyer does, or why it is that an agent for the FBI pursued an invest you know pursued an investigation in a certain way, if you have a genuine curiosity and, and a drive to want to learn more about what they do and why they made the choices that they make, and then you express and share and communicate that genuine curiosity and enthusiasm for their work and their path. Um, in my experience, you know, most people most of the time respond very positively to that.
0: Yeah, I like that. Tell me about, you know, on the bench, you observed a lot of advocacy. What
1: what was a piece of skillful av- advocacy you observed? Um, the number one thing that I observe that I think too few trial lawyers appreciate is that almost always um, the most important questions are or the most important arguments are the questions or arguments that you didn't make or didn't post. You know, I think of great advocacy as ultimately about curation. Right. And, you know, when I think of great curation, I think of painters or I think of musicians who are always thinking about what strokes or notes to drop or to, you know, know, exclude entirely from their body of work or their piece of work. And I think for, for, for advocates in the courtroom, certainly um, the very best were, were almost minimalist by nature, right? They figured out the two or three things they needed to ask or the one or two arguments they needed to make and then left a whole lot more on the cutting room floor. Um, that was something I saw that um, and continue to see that is very consistent among the grades. I like that.
0: Um, so then tell me some more about you know, again with this notion that we're, we're we're building out the uh the uh the hidden story of paul Greywall, the things that people haven't heard about uh because I, I think you know plenty of people heard about your move uh that i think uh excited surprise wowed a lot of people from the best through facebook uh so tell me about the things that people don't appreciate about that move
1: well um one thing maybe that is not easy to appreciate uh is that um I really, really love being a judge, and so um, I think a lot of us, when we make career changes, um, in whatever form, right, are are moving away from something we don't like or running from something that um, is bringing us stress or anxiety or just unhappiness. And in my case, that just was not true. I hope that I was able to communicate effectively day in and day out um, when I was on the bench. That I, I really just loved day to day. I love being in the courtroom. I love the characters that find their way into a federal courthouse day in and day out. Um, I love the fact that I had no real idea what I would be working on in, um, over the course of the day, just given sort of the random and tumultuous nature of most, most court cases. All of that was fantastic. I certainly loved the relationship I had with my fellow judges. I most of all loved and adored the relationship I had with my law clerk. So it was it was a heady, wonderful experience, and so um, it it might be quite understandable or reasonable to think, well, then why would you leave? <laughs> um, and how could it be that you were so happy and yet you were willing to give it all up? And I think for me, it was um, you know this was not 2016. I'd been work I'd been serving as a as a U.S. magistrate judge for nearly six years at that point. Um, you know, not nearly as long as as many, but you know, long enough to uh, understand the basics of the job and. Um, to have done a lot of interesting things in that job, um, so that I felt like uh, you know there were other professional opportunities um, that I wanted to pursue and other professional skills I wanted to acquire and, and develop. You know, at that point in time, I had probably written, I don't know, a couple hundred um, published opinions. Um, I was very fortunate that in the Northern District of California, where I serve magistrate judges, um, have the opportunity to try civil cases of both sides of a case consent to the magistrate judge's jurisdiction and I don't know I think I was able to do something like 30 35 civil jury trials in nearly six years which was a pretty heady clip um, and so you know had had that experience I think to the degree that I had hoped for and you know at the same time um, when I learned about the experience at Facebook when um, I was introduced to the to the team there and came to understand that what they really wanted at that point in time was someone who understood the court, um, understood courtroom advocacy. They wanted someone to run litigation who had seen a lot of different cases uh, and worked on a wide range of issues. And of course, you have nothing, if not a diverse docket of cases, when you sit as a magistrate judge or a, or, or a trial judge of any type in any federal court, it all just kind of made sense to me for them. And so, um, yeah, you know, as someone who was never afraid to, uh, you know, zig and zag in in my career path, um, it felt like an opportunity that I would very much enjoy and would regret if I didn't take. And then the other thing I would say is that, um, again, coming back to you know an earlier uh, theme you, you you were exploring, um, I had to sort of at that point ask whether I could once again start as if not as a junior person a new person in a very you know complicated organization facebook was stuffed with super smart super talented people and you know no one was going to call me judge graywall when i walked around the campus in menlo park (laughs) and um although one or two did uh, for the most part you know i was just paul from building 20 or 23 and um yeah i had my badge with everybody else uh, I rode my bicycle and, and locked it in, in, in the bike rack in front of you know the main campus entrance, uh, just like every other employee. And so, um, you know, fortunately, having you know made that transition at least once or twice earlier in my career, that wasn't the big deal that um, it might have been for some other people. I I was very comfortable, you know, leaving a role at that point where everybody stood when I entered the room. Everybody laughed at every joke I made on the bench. Um, Fifty percent of the people who left my courtroom thought I was wise and, um, you know, uh, and, uh, uh, and and brilliant. Even if the other half thought I was the opposite, um, you know, I was just at that point very, um, uh, very comfortable in my own skin, and, and and quite willing to make yet another change because I thought I would grow in a different direction. I think when you stop growing, you stop living, and so that that was really as much as anything what motivated my move to Facebook.
0: Were there other roles that had the same profile? And so there was, what was the, the tiebreaker that made you go to Facebook?
1: Well, I hadn't really considered any other role, um, certainly seriously at that point. Um, for me, it was um, all the things I mentioned about the opportunity, but also the fact that I had an instinct, even if I couldn't quite have predicted how much this would turn out to be true, that the company was about to enter a very different phase of life. You know, at that point in 2016, Facebook still largely basked in the glow of, um, you know, our adoration for all things tech. And there was still, I think, a, a, a perhaps naive view that most of the things tech did most of the time were, um, you know, in, in pursuit of human progress and were, you know, that tech was a force for good. Um, and it was becoming increasingly clear, certainly by the early 2016, that um that view was starting to look a bit naive or simplistic. And the company was about to head into some, I think, very challenging legal issues that I would have a chance to play some role in. And so that was also super attractive to me. And, you know, I don't know, it took maybe three or four weeks uh, after I joined the company in 2016 for that to become abundantly clear. And so at least I got that call right.
0: And so then, you know, again, you had a certain set of skills, that you expected to gain out of the role and then maybe there's some that surprised you that you weren't expecting to pick up or what
1: were the surprises what were the things that you yeah well yeah i mean look at at that point in my career i mean i tried a lot of cases um not only as a trial lawyer but at that point as a trial judge um i mentioned that i'd worked on a bunch of different kinds of cases data privacy intellectual property competition issues you know whatever the case may be so I, i had a lot of confidence much more confidence at that point that i could not only draw upon my experiences working on these different cases, but orient to new types of cases altogether that would come up in a way that I think would be effective. What I had never done though, Coram was i never led an organization. Um, you know, my enti- as a law firm partner, you don't really lead an organization the same way as you do in other settings, such as, you know, in, inside of a company or in the military or elsewhere. Um, You know, you have a group of associates that, you know, you sort of assemble on the fly, you form these coalitions of the willing that, you know, move forward managing these cases, and then then a handful of them, you take the cases to trial, and then you break up the band, right? And and you you look for the next case or the next project and assemble a different team, um, even if some of the same characters repeat themselves. That was certainly true as a judge. I had a couple of law clerks, I had a courtroom deputy, uh, and that was about it, you know. Whereas by the time I left Facebook, um, you know, I was leading an organization of several hundred people. I had you know teams literally all over the world. Those were all challenges I had never taken on before, and required a whole new set of skills in terms of you know managing that complexity, uh, um, understanding what the business and its priorities were, and making sure that you know my litigation team, my regulatory team, my corporate team, whatever the case may be, were focused on those priorities day in and day out. I had to manage comp, compensation, and performance, you know, issues just like any other, you know, leader of an organization inside of a company. I'd never done that before. Oh, and by the way, I had to go back to a world where um, I had a boss, like everybody else. And, you know, I had to make sure that my boss thought my work was great. You know, as a judge, you kind of have a boss in the form of the chief judge of your court. Maybe you can think of the appellate court, you know, courts as supervising your work, but at the end of the day, you really don't have anybody who really tells you what to do or cares beyond a certain point how you do it. And um, so I had to you know, adapt back to that world or really adapt to it for the first time. So there were a lot of skills that I had to um, develop that um, were new and, and certainly challenging for me.
0: And then uh, I think you can see where this is going with your next move. So then, you know, same thing, you know, it, you know the move through Coinbase was, you know, a lot of attention for that. Uh, you know, it was obviously a company that a lot of attention was being given to, but it was still uh, a remarkable move. Um, and so what, you know, what was, what's the story that people haven't heard about the calculus and in the decision to do that?
1: Well, look, I think one thing that was um, very consistent um, in my move to coinbase, with my move to the court, and even in my progress in my firm life before that was, I've always been a huge believer that you know when the opportunity comes, when the ball crosses the plate and it's time to swing, you better be ready and you better not miss. And so um, you know I only applied to be a magistrate judge when I felt confident that I could not only do it but do it very well. And the same was true when I went to Facebook. Uh, to take over litigation and then with time other areas of, of the legal department fell to my responsibility but in each of those cases um i was not the top dog i was not the number one i was not the district judge of the ninth circuit judge or federal circuit judge in my time on the bench uh when i went to facebook i was not the general counsel by the time it came um for me to decide whether to accept the opportunity at coinbase um i was being asked to serve as the chief legal officer, and um, for me, that was um, something that I finally felt I was ready to do. Having led, you know, a complicated organization at Facebook, dealing with uh, you know a whole range of super messy issues for the company, everything from Cambridge Analytica to um, you know, all sorts of different class actions involving data privacy and intellectual property and regulatory fights with the FTC and elsewhere. Um, You know, by the time it was time for me to step up into the chief legal officer role at Coinbase, I felt like I had the grounding, I had the experience. um, And um, that all gave me the confidence to think, you know what, I'm ready to do this. And, you know, you asked about what may have been less obvious in all of that. Well, I think a lot of people, you know, when they think of digital assets or cryptocurrency, they think that you've got um, a group of people who are not just passionate, but maybe even fanatical and delusional about, you know, sort of ideological or, or other underpinnings of, of Bitcoin and you know all the other um, tokens and assets that we deal with. I had none of that. I'd read the white paper. In fact, the first time I believe I read the Satoshi white paper, which laid out the thesis for Bitcoin was when I was an MJ on the bench and I was asked to review a Rule 41 search warrant um, from an FBI agent looking to see some Bitcoin in an investigation. And this was back in like 2012, maybe, maybe even 2011. It was early days. But I had not like um, immersed myself in that universe, and I was not, you know, yearning to be a part of a movement or a revolution. Um, I wanted to help some very smart and good people do some interesting and important things. And I had a, a sense once again that this company, like my last company, was about to enter a very different phase of legal life. And um, you know, I've just been a huge believer as a lawyer that um, it never, it, it certainly. Um, is never a bad thing, and I think can often be a huge catalyst and accelerant in, in a legal career. To put yourself in positions where um, the major questions, the major fights, um, you know, the major opportunities of the organization are all grounded in law, because at that point in time, you know, you will be um, not only an important part of the of the work, an important voice in the conversation. Um, you're gonna, you're also going to be, I think, uniquely positioned to assume leadership. And, um, yeah, that was, that was essentially what I thought about Coinbase in 2020. And once again, um, my vague instincts that the company was about to enter a huge number of really messy fights turned out to be pretty true. <laughs> at least if you look at my, my, uh, to-do list this morning in 2023.
0: Well, doubling back to, to Facebook. So decision to join there. Uh, it, so there, I mean, I, I think we, uh, you know, your role now, you know, the 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 role of um, resolving regulatory issues is seems to be essential to the business. Like so, your role mm-hmm. is, you know, the the overlap between product and your role is is huge. Um, it, that seems to be less the case at your role at Facebook. And so, what made you take the leap to Facebook, knowing that um, IP issues weren't at the centerpiece of, of of the organization? What made you think that you're going to skill up and level up? From that move, aside from the company's trajectory, what made you think that that function yeah. was good for you?
1: Yeah. Well, um, I, I actually think in 2016, um, litigation and regulatory issues were about to become fairly existential for for Facebook in a way that wasn't true before. Um, to my knowledge, Facebook had only had one jury trial up until that point. Um, Certainly it was true that Mark Zuckerberg had never testified in any court case. Um, and you know, if you fast forward just 18 months after I joined, when the Cambridge Analytica scandal blew um, and suddenly uh, Mark and others were being called in front of Congress to ac- account for and explain what had happened in that situation. And those were all very novel experiences that proved to be quite searing for the company. Um, and so um, as, 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 it, as it turned out actually, you know, um, what was once, I think, I don't want to say it was a quieter function because Facebook's always had its share of litigation and regulatory investigations. But what became a very public and strategic um, challenge for the company necessarily meant that the things I was working on, like you know helping to put the Cambridge Analytica situation um, um, to bed or at least at rest, or you know making sure that when you know we went to trial in these billion-dollar cases that the outcomes were. Uh, at least neutral, if not positive, most of the time. It meant that um, you know I would have an opportunity that um, I don't think I would have had five years before in the same role, and maybe I wouldn't have even you know today, five years later, just given you know how much um, the company has changed over that period of time. Mm.
0: And can you be a little more specific about like how you? like how is the opportunity for the Facebook how did you come across that opportunity did Facebook approach you directly tell me tell me about, a little more of the, cuz it's kind of unusual for a magistrate judge i would think to be
1: approached by a company tell me some more how that happened it's pretty unusual um you know we don't have um we don't have on campus recruiting in the federal judiciary so it works a little bit differently than you know many young lawyers would would, would, would probably be more familiar with um, now, for me, like, um, as I think back to it, you know, a number of my friends who, who um, were still practicing law, very much practicing law, told me um, in late 2015, or early 2016, that Facebook was looking for um, a new kind of leader. Um, I think the general counsel, Colin Stretch, was very forward-looking in his view um, and understood quite well as a very talented um, advocate and litigator himself. That he needed some additional expertise in the company. That he needed um, expertise, in particular, when it came to courtroom advocacy and strategic um, planning and direction setting um, throughout. You know, some very intense regulatory investigations. And so, when my friends mentioned to me that um, Colin was. And, 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 and the leadership beyond Colin was looking for this new kind of leader for the company. Um, the more I thought about it, you know the more intrigued I was that you know it's, I, re- I realized I, I present a, a somewhat atypical or unusual profile um, in terms of you know people interested in that. Um, but you know if, if, if they actually came to learn sort of my story and what I could do and what I had done, maybe they might be interested. And so um, at their encouragement, uh, I reached out to Colin. We had a cup of coffee and just like, you know, um, so many jobs and so many opportunities for all of us. Right. One cup of coffee led to a lunch. One lunch led to a, a dinner. A dinner led to a series of conversations and, and meetings and interviews. And before I knew it, I was, you know, hanging up my rope, literally, um, and, uh, you know, signing it for a very different kind of life um, at the company.
0: Well, earlier you referenced this concept of seizing opportunities, you know, like, hey, like, here it comes. You got to be prepared for it. And so I, I want to kind of explore that theme in, in in some of these other moves that you made. And so there, let's say with your friends, how do they know to come to you with that? Did, had you told your friends, hey, by the way, I'm open to other opportunities or you know, how, was there something you messaged in that way? Not like waving a, a flag saying, I need to get hired or whatever, because you said you were happy. Tell me tell me yeah. how people need to talk, tell you about this.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it was really not much more complicated than... Um, a conversation or two, in which you know my friends basically said, "You seem very happy, Paul. You seem to enjoy the public service life." Um, you know, obviously there were further opportun- potential opportunities in within the judiciary uh, available, um, and yet um, it seems like, in a strange way, um, everything you've been doing up until this point in your career is exactly what. Facebook is looking for, or could benefit from in this new role, and so um, you know, I can't say that like immediately. I thought, oh my gosh, yes, this is the next you know thing I need to go do. Um, I tend to be much more, I don't know, circumspect or incremental, and so I said, yeah, I'll have a cup of coffee. Um, let me hear more about it, and it just sort of built upon that, as opposed to you know, maybe for some people, like there are grand revelations, like you know, Moses coming on down from the mountain with the tablets. Um, about sort of what they want to do or need to do next in their professional or personal life. Um, that just, just stopped in my experience. It's been much more about you know seeing um, something that catches my eye, learning more, and then thinking through. Um, and this is also something that I've weighed very heavily, is the upside of the new opportunity, whatever it may be, not just incrementally better than what I have right now, but does it possess the potential to be 2, 3, 10x better, however you define it, and according to whatever metrics you use, in a way that makes it worth taking that leap of faith and risking that it doesn't work out, and that you're not, not only much more happy, but happier at all, and God forbid, much less happy. So I think you have to think about, at least I've had. I've always tried to think about, like, are there those big leaps um, and, and uh, uh of uh, are those, those big in, you know, increases, however you define it available or at least potentially available in a way that makes, you know, makes it worth pursuing.
0: And then, you know, with the move to Coinbase, how did you, how that opportunity,
1: there's the opportunity, there's you, how did those two converge? Yeah. Yeah. So it's so Coinbase was, you know, I mean, I'm, again, like I know a, a lot of people talk about how, you know, they are tapped on the shoulder or someone whispered that, you know, um, People are interested. Like, my process was much more pedestrian and mundane. I got a call from a recruiter, just like everybody else. Um, and, uh, you know, at that point in time, Coinbase was still a private company. I think we had maybe 500 employees. We now have something like 3,500, and we are publicly listed. We have been for several years. Um, it was a smaller, more um, chaotic um, place. And yet, and yet, um, I think by, by twenty twenty, it was clear, at least to me, that um, cryptocurrency and digital assets were not going away. They were not some you know fad or fraud that you know would just sort of disappear as quickly as they appeared. That this was for real. That you know there there were real opportunities with this technology, um, and real markets to to build and 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 develop. And yet, you know, there were also very real challenges that were largely rooted or grounded in law. Um, that could benefit from someone who had spent a lot of time in the courtroom, but had at this point in time now managed some very complex litigation or rather investigations um, for a major tech company. And critically from, who had, you know, at that point in time learned and understood how to navigate the corporate world, you know, how to, you know, how to marshal resources um, um, inside of an, of, of, a, of a large complicated organization where lots of other people, Want and need resources for what they're there to accomplish, um, and how to exercise influence and even maybe power uh, on occasion with no real explicit authority. You know, these are these are skills and talents that I think are also critical to success. And having you know learned a certain amount of about how to do all of those things inside of Facebook, I think there was an opportunity for me to really apply the, those lessons in a in a in a pretty a, a significant way at Coinbase, given that Coinbase at that point in time was less than 10 years old, was, you know, a generation or two earlier um, in its development than say Facebook was. And so it just, it made a lot of sense. And then, you know, as I went through a process that you and many others, I think are quite familiar with, of interviews and conversations and more lunches and more dinners. um, I just came to really, really like the people. At Coinbase, in much the same way that I really, really like the people I'd worked with at Facebook, I've just been very blessed and lucky that um, I've never really had a terrible boss. I've had many great bosses. Uh, I've never really had coworkers that annoyed me or frustrated me for the most part. You know, the people I've worked with in each of my jobs in my career are people that I still consider friends to this day. Um, And so when I saw that same sort of spark and magic here at Coinbase that I experienced at Facebook and elsewhere in my career, And added to that, you know, again, the instinct or the native nascent thought in my mind that um, this company was about to enter some pretty serious legal fights and chat and, and confront some serious legal challenges. I just thought like, I think this could be, I think this could be perfect. I think this could really be the right next move for me. And so once again, you know, I took on a new job. I started as the new guy. I had to prove myself once again and, you know. Still have to prove myself even to this day in many ways.
0: And then how did you think about, you know, the 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 risk profile of the role is very different from Facebook to Coinbase, right? Uh, Facebook yeah. was a de-risk at that point. Uh, like you say, it was just pretty much here to stay. And any of the legal issues it was facing was from the fact that it was here to stay. Coinbase is a very different scenario. So then tell me about how you thought about those two risk profiles. Was it the case that because you had, let's say, um, you know, skillful management of your personal finances. You felt like, hey, like that's all very sound. I can take a flyer here. That was the basis of it was because, hey, I've kind of seen it all. I've done, you know, I joined the work as a partner, got a variety of experiences. The magistrate magistrate judge took on this role with this with this different set of properties at Facebook, and now I can enter a new phase. Of course, it could be both of those. But tell me about, you know, like what made uh, the risk profile of this move attractive
1: for you. Well, I think in terms of, you know, my professional um, risk appetite, again, I've been very lucky that, um, you know, I, I, throughout my professional life, i had the support of my wife, Gary, um, who has been quite successful in her own career. That provided a certain amount of downside protection. I've also been fortunate to, enough to have experienced for myself that you don't enjoy um, large, you know asymmetrical upsides without taking on asymmetrical outsized risks right and you know having seen that to some degree at facebook but myself but more importantly you know gotten to know people who had truly experienced that um having you know, been a part of the facebook journey from the very beginning um that was very appealing and attractive to me um <laughs> yeah, just to be very clear quorum the the number one risk i had to sort of confront and, and work through was, how do I tell my parents to go work for a cryptocurrency firm? Uh, my, my Desi mom and dad um, were certainly aware of what Bitcoin was and you know what ETH and other digital assets um, promised to do, but um, they were much more skeptical, I'll put it that way. And at the same time, you know, like a lot of great Desi parents, they were absolutely in love with Facebook and WhatsApp and everything else. And so um, I was leaving a company that they literally engaged with several dozen times a day, every day with the people that were closest to them to go to this cryptocurrency company that like sold Bitcoin. What's that all about? So um, thinking through that narrative, was probably much more of a challenge for me. I was going to make that phone call to mom and dad than anything else I had to worry about.
0: Yeah. Okay. The And yeah, explaining things to your parents is definitely
1: a big obstacle uh, to... uh, Always. doesn't matter how how senior or or seasoned you get. um, That's always still the most important call to make.
0: You know, I'm curious, in your story so far, I haven't really heard you talk about the role of mentors and talking about um, models as for decisions and i haven't heard you say well i saw someone make a move like this and, and that seemed interesting or 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 maybe this move didn't work for this person for this reason so i learned from negative example in these different moves you've made were there models for you that you look to, to for 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 uh, a gut check for guidance for rules of thumb or was it really just saying hey i'm feeling this out on my own
1: um well i certainly think that uh i have had to reason through a lot of these decisions and opportunities largely based on first principles or, you know, um, you know, fundamental values. But to be super clear, like I've had incredible role models and mentors really at every stage of my career and really every stage of my life, starting first and foremost with my parents. Um, like a lot of our parents, um, mine, you know, took a leap of faith when they came to the United States. They happened to, my father came to the U.S. in 1963. Um, He left a a sunny, warm place called Punjab with a huge, massive, loving family and landed in the frozen steeps of northern Minnesota, (laughs) Um, probably wondering what the hell he had just decided to do when he came to the U.S. for school. Um, And eventually my mom and my older brother showed up after that. You know, when I think to the leap of faith that he and my mother had to make, you know, deciding between one amazing opportunity in a legal career in the U.S. versus another seems somewhat childish, right? Like, it's just like, oh, do I be a federal judge or go be a law partner? Or, oh, do I leave, you know, go, go be a law partner or go be a chief legal officer? Like, hardly the challenge that, you know, the people closest to me have had to confront um, several times in their lives. But even within the law, like, you know, I mentioned the judge that I worked for, you know. Their joy in their work had a tremendous imprint and an impact on me in ways that I mentioned. But you know, continue this day, and so that's always been an important touchstone for me in thinking through new opportunities. I don't expect to be like giddy and um, on cloud nine every day. In fact, most days, you know, these jobs that you and I and others do are super hard. They're stressful. They 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 grind you down, and in some cases, they beat you up. But over the course of many of those days, and hopefully, you know, many months and many years in those kinds of roles, I think it's important to ask yourself periodically, Am I growing? Am I learning? Um, And am I finding joy at what I'm able to accomplish? And so, you know, assessing that potential has been an important framework and milestone for me as I thought about new career opportunities. And then, you know, I think another thing that really helps is I've never, I've tried to never assume or presume, Quorum, that Um, I get another day or another week or another year in the future, um, to, to reassess or reconsider, you know, choice that I have. Um, I don't want to say that I'm a complete fatalist, but even when I was a a much younger person, I've always had this nagging sense that like, you know, there's just a bus on, on a street corner waiting to run me over or, you know, a change in circumstance in my life that comes in another way that, um, could mean that I don't get to do this anymore. And so I try not to us uh, uh, you know take for granted uh, that I have these opportunities. And so if something catches my eye or intrigues me, uh, I'm going to go do it, even if it means I'm going to stumble and bumble um, along the way.
0: Well, it's totally fair that you know, compared to say your parents, you know, the, the magnitude of the decision they're making uh, in the different outcomes pales in comparison to the privileged position of this great opportunity, this great opportunity. Um, but in the position of of having those opportunities. How did you, did you look to any other guideposts? Did you see like other decisions, like say I'm thinking particularly for the move from Facebook to Coinbase, you know, yeah. from, you know from an AGC role to a, GC, a CLO, mm-hmm. then, you know, were there people that had taken similar moves with the, you know, you use the word asymmetric bet, you know, similar yep. asymmetric bets that either paid off or didn't pay off that you look to for, for, okay, that's, that's a gut check. And that's, uh, that's how I'm going the right direction.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, um, there are plenty of law firm partners who aspire to a life as a federal judge, whether it's a circuit judge, a justice on the Supreme Court, or a magistrate judge, or or anything else for that matter. Um, And so that was not all that hard to sort of understand. And it was very easy for me to picture myself following that very tried and true path. What was, I think, much harder was um identifying role models in terms of judges who had left the bench not just at you know the peak of their careers but you know really in the heart of their careers um and you know had gone not back to a law firm where you know you largely sat in a corner office and gave advice about what you know your former court did or you did mediation but you know as a working professional inside of a corporation where you know You're subject to performance reviews and bonus assessments like everybody else. You know, there are a handful of judges who have done that, um, but certainly very few had done that um, by going into tech, which is something I was particularly interested in. Um, And then, you know, leaving what I think some charitably call big tech to go to what was still then a startup, a private company in a very controversial, complicated space like cryptocurrency. Yeah, there weren't a lot of people, um, I think, who necessarily did that, at least in the way that I did. Um, And so, yeah, I really had to sort of reason a lot of this out on my own. Um, And, you know, again, applying some some pretty simple, maybe even too simple, you know, standards. Am I excited by this? Um, Is this something that I will look back on in three or five or 10 or 20 years and be proud of um, the work that I've done, uh, regardless of how it turns out? Um, and then the other thing for me, Haram, has always just been like, I've, you know, the lawyers, especially who I've admired more than any other, have typically tended to be the ones who have engaged the law in a number of different ways over the course of their career. I, I've just, I, while I've respected the heck out of the lawyer who goes to a fancy law school or not so fancy law school, joins a law firm as a summer associate, and 32 years later gets a gold watch, um, that was never what I wanted to do. I, I always wanted to be one of those people who was able to climb different mountains and engage with the law, which I, I've always loved, but in different ways and be successful to some degree in, in each of those, um, in each of those circumstances. So that was always like, for me, what defines success. And, um, and so that that's been useful, um, in, in sort of sorting through different opportunities at different points in my career, because, you know, the fact that I'd been successful at something for five or 10 years before didn't really weigh very much in my In my calculus,
0: you mentioned that you love the practice of law. You love, you know, these angles of your approach. Is it possible to have a rewarding career, a rewarding legal career, and not love law?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you and I probably know between the two of us, dozens, hundreds, (laughs) thousands of people who, you know, from the outsider on the surface, are you know enjoying all kinds of rewards from the practice of law, financial rewards. Um, rewards in terms of prestige or rewards in terms of knowing what it is you're supposed to be doing on any given day right like law allows you to sort of um, compartmentalize what it is you're there to do and avoid having to sort of you know start each day or each each week or whatever figuring all that out um, and yet are they happy um, or even if they're happy enough are they as happy as they could be um, was their was their work meaningful did they did they actually Uh, Accomplish things that matter? Um, In some cases, the answer is yes. And those are the people that I tend to admire and enjoy being around the most. But in many cases, I think among lawyers, um, the answer is either no or um, just as concerning, I don't know. I don't know if I'm happy. I don't know if I've accomplished everything I set out to do. Um, And so, yeah, I just, I always wanted to be one of those lawyers who look back with no regrets. And, you know, we've talked a lot about my successes and I, I'm I'm grateful that you have focused on a number of them, but I've stumbled and fallen in many different ways. You mentioned, you know, the judgeship that I had as a magistrate judge. Well, what we didn't talk about is I was at one point considered for a district judgeship and had my, you know, proposed nomination pulled, you know, at the very last minute, that was devastating to me. Um, It was embarrassing to me. Um, And yet I had to pull myself back up. We didn't talk about the fact that um, when uh, I went to Facebook um, about eighteen or t- months or two years after I joined. Uh, the general counsel left, and I was considered to replace him, but I was not picked. I was passed over. That was embarrassing. That was frustrating. That was challenging. And you know, you know, more recently, um, you know, I've won a few cases, and we've done pretty well in some investigations here at Coinbase, but we've also lost others. Um, and I've had you know, to make the difficult call uh, to our CEO or to our board and explain that things were not going well or that we had not um, succeeded in the way that they had hoped for and frankly expected. So, you know, I'm stumbling along the way as, as much as anyone. And yet, you know, um, I don't really ultimately care very much that I failed. I think I would care much more at the end of my professional life if I had never tried to do some of these different things. That's the regret i I'm, I'm most afraid of at the end of my career. And so that's the regret I try to optimize against uh to the degree it's within my control.
0: Yeah, I, I think that is worth commenting on because I feel like I, I've definitely known a number of equity partners over the years who, you know, uh, talking about, you know, some entrepreneurial move that they've observed, uh, maybe me, maybe someone else, and said, Oh, I would I I would I thought about doing that at one point. I would like to do that, you know, but you know, they're just I don't even know if it's necessarily financial and golden handcuffs related, but they're just so tied to that identity of that one path
1: they're on. And the, the, I think I, it's much more that. I, I honestly do. I you know, for some cases for some people it may just be like they've got a certain lifestyle they need to convene in finance and they're worried about their ability to do that in the short or medium term if they pursue a, a more entrepreneurial opportunity. But in most cases, at least among the lawyers that I spend the most time with, it's much more about their identity. I've been not just a lawyer, but a senior lawyer or a partner in this organization for a very long time. And um, with that comes a certain status, with that comes a certain amount of deference. But most importantly, with that comes is a certain amount of defined purpose. You know what you're there to do. And it can be very scary um, to go from a world in which you know exactly what it, you have to do in order to be viewed as successful. World where like you don't even know what it is like you're aiming for. I mean that's the life of most entrepreneurs I know, or even people who pursue new opportunities um, where they have to learn that landscape all over again. I think it's that fear as much as anything that holds too many lawyers back. Um, and you know I'm not immune from that or immune to that, but um, I hope that more and more people who practice law come to understand that it's a huge, wide world out there. There's so much interesting stuff happening and. As, as as inspired and impressive as the practice of law can be, it just barely, barely scratches the surface in terms of all the other things that you know talented people can do in this world if they just set their mind to it.
0: And tell me about you know with risk taking, you know, in your experience, you know, it sounds like uh, I my impression of you and is, is that you are definitely if there's a a, a spectrum of risk taking, you're definitely much more on the risk taking side. And I'm curious, do you think that is something just like it's just innate, someone's disposition, just the way that some people are uh inclined to be in the outdoors or whatever. Just some people just have to be drawn to that or whatever, or drawn to the arts or something like that. um You know, of course, with any of this, of course it would be cultivated, but we can say, largely speaking, some people are just more driven in a certain way, and just that's how it is. Like, do you think that risk thing is a cultural issue that can be mitigated, or is it just inherent in people? And just some people are some people like you take risks and some
1: people don't. I, I think you know this is. What you're what you're ultimately asking about is the is is the classic nature versus nurture debate, <laughs> and uh, I do think that um, there is a certain nature that defines or describes. I think certainly among lawyers, those that are more willing to take risks or more willing to um, adopt a new sort of um, view of you know their professional life and their pro- set of professional opportunities. But I think there are I think there are um, important ways in which that instinct or that maybe even that talent, if I can use that word, um, can be developed and, and nurtured. Um, you know, one of the things I think that um, kind of amazes me Corum, is if you think about it right, think about how we. How we recruit and attract people to the practice of law, If you look at the sort of amazing range of experiences and interests that um defines you know the the entering class of every law school i'm aware of right and the fact that we uh, encourage and um really prioritize a wide range of diverse interests in selecting you know um, members of any given entering law school class and then what happens over the course of the next three years right we sort of chip away at and winnow and beat down all the ways in which all these different people are special um, and ultimately churn out, you know, a very similar profile um, for the most part of a finished law student product. And then from there, it only gets worse, right? Think about like what an entering class of associates looks like at any major law firm. Incredible range of interests, incredibly diverse talents. And we sort of define what it means to be a successful accomplishment way that sort of standardizes that in ways that looks very different you know, when when you finally get to the very small number of them who make partner or, or build successful practices inside the firm. So I, I do think that um, resisting that wherever possible is important. Um, I think that um, having a bit of perspective and understanding our history is also something you can nurture that will, I, I think, lead to a greater appetite for risk or a greater appreciation that, you know, the choices that, most of us in the practice of all have to make, you know, are really, you know, choices that are extremely, um, similar and, and really don't vary very much, uh, in terms of risk or, um, potential downside. When you look at the grand arc of what most people in our society and our community have to deal with on a daily basis, and even if that's too abstract to really kind of engage with, again, I come back to, you know, our own families, our own stories, our own histories where- and almost every one of you know our uh, our, our, our own um, families, you know, story. There are challenges that make you know the difference between you know big law firm A and big law firm B look comical, right? Um, these are not these are not you know life altering choices. So I just think having an understanding of history and appreciation um, is also something that's really really important.
0: You know when you talk about risk, it seems to me that the you've been taking risk um with these these career leaps. It's kind of this all in risk that you take necessarily every time you do this. Are there ways that you could have or that other people can take smaller risks? Is there are there ways you know of of, of doing something on the side of some kind that uh, you know is is a way to stretch yourself, challenge yourself, not as risky, but exposes you to, gives you the benefit of the of the exposure to new experiences and new perspectives that you're talking about. Yeah. Opportunities.
1: Yeah, I mean, a thousand ideas come to mind, right? So a small example, you know, I think of ex- risk and, and exposing yourself to new people, new ideas as um, maybe the most important element of, of, of developing a different approach to career choices. So, you know, it can be something as basic as, Instead of, you know, flying to Maui like everybody else does for a week or 10 days when you're, you know, a hardworking, you know, law firm associate um, and sitting on a beach and you know, relaxing in a way that you totally deserve and, and, and have earned, um, you know, maybe you spend that week or 10 days of vacation taking a pottery class at your local community college where the people you're going to be interacting with are going to be very different by and large from you know, the people who tend to go to the same resort and same island at the same time of the year. Um, maybe it's, um, you know, instead of moving up from a two bedroom with your roommate to a three bedroom, maybe it's, you know, staying an extra year on that lease and then taking the amount of money that you would have spent on the additional rent and dabbling in a little bit of real estate with 10 of your friends, you know, by starting with, you know, a one bedroom condo purchase that needs a lot of work and building it up and starting to develop a taste or appetite for real estate. You know, there's just a thousand different examples like that. Maybe it's instead of, um, you know, billing 2,400 hours a year at your firm, um, in order to qualify for the next level of bonus, maybe it's only billing 2,200 hours a year, um, and either taking on pro bono work that exposes you to different ideas and different kinds of clients and different kinds of legal issues, or God forbid, spending those extra 200 hours a year on reading a book or a series of books, right? Uh, Continuing to educate yourself in literature and art and music. Um, That's another way to take different risks and expose yourself to different ideas um, that a lot of people think about. So, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, we all have to make choices and trade-offs. I just think that sometimes, and I'm guilty of this. I do this every day. You know, we imagine or, or or come to convince ourselves that the choices in front of us are the only ones available. When, if you just take half a step back, you realize like, no, like there are all kinds of different alternatives out there. It's just, you know, you have to take the blinders off sometimes.
0: You know, you talked about exposing yourself to people with different sets of ideas. And I'm struck that, you know, when you're say the story that you're telling of at the Master judge is that more than one friend came to you with, Hey, you know, there's this opportunity that could be a fit for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. that people knew you so well and wanted to help you. Uh, how did you how have you cultivated the, that quality of of friendship relationships and, and what what role has that that set of relationships
1: played in your career well um I, i'm actually going to focus on the word friendship that you i think that's actually the most important um, type of relationship um, you know it certainly has been for me um because it's the one that's often the most neglected right like we all i think instinctively understand that um inside of our families, we have a responsibility to our partner, or to our certainly to our children, and to our parents. And so, you know, I think that's generally well understood. And some of us are better at that than others. Um, But at least we all I think, generally appreciate that that's um, just part of what you do um, in order to build a healthy, and happy life for oneself. I think friendship tends to get ignored. I think, and, and I'm speaking now, as a 52 year old guy, I think Older male friendship in particular tends to get ignored um, far more than we maybe want to admit. And so, you know, in my personal and professional life, I've tried to resist that. Um, I tend to, you know, be friends with a lot of lawyers. I like hanging out with lawyers. I like people who practice law, um, although not exclusively. They know that that, that those tend to be my people. And, you know, throughout my career, um, you know, one of the things I've been proudest of is whether it was when I was a law clerk um, or a young associate, even on the bench. Um, and, and even to this day, I feel that you know, some of the most um, meaningful impacts that I've had on other people come through my friendship with um, not just other men, but other women and others um, who, um, you know, I've, to varying degrees, um, remembered, even when you know, my own life gets very busy, and I have competing demands on my time in much the same way as we all do. Um, so to answer your question about how that's impacted you know, my career, you know, I think that um, you know, the fact that I've tried to be as helpful to my friends um, and even people I wouldn't consider friends but that I've just come to know in giving them a piece of advice or thinking of them when I get a phone call about an opportunity that's not necessarily a great fit for me but could be a great fit for them. And, you know, with no expectations, just you know, try to help other people navigate this this hard, crazy life um, as best as they can. And you know, on occasion, sometimes I, I suppose that that does um, come back. Uh, and I've been grateful for when it has. But I don't have that expectation. I don't think any of us should have that expectation in any of our successful friendships, because um, it, it it just it, I think is something that um, is much more valuable in the giving than in the receiving. I guess is how I would put it.
0: And I understood you just saying your comment about you know the unique the 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 ways in which you think friendship is neglected because my understanding is what you're that's the kind of stuff there's family which is well understood and I think uh, investing in say professional relationships like hey I'm part of a bar association or or something formal informal investing client development you know I think those are well well understood or or t- discussed as well. Uh, you know, you can go take a course on, you know, family stuff is, you know, there's lots of support for that religion, lots, lots of, yeah. a, a, of uh, of, of support for family related things, lots of support for networking and professional stuff. You know, you can, you can take a course on business development, uh, hire a yep. coach, or, uh, but relatively little in the way of, Hey, here's how to focus on your friends and here's reminders on, on friends. So that, that's, that it, it, it occupies this
1: value between those two is, is what how I, I'm hearing you talk about this. Yeah, and it's the hardest thing because, you know, especially for lawyers, because you know we have pretty demanding schedules and lives, right? So professionally, um, you know, personally, like there often isn't a lot of extra time or extra emotional um, space for time with friends or commitments to friends. And yet, um, you know, maybe I'm getting a bit more philosophical as I get older and reflective as my children, you know, move um through school and, and ultimately out of the house and into their own life that you know you you ultimately have a chunk of life um professionally and personally where friendship is really like all you have <laughs> whether you have like a life partner uh, whether you have an extended family or not because um you know uh it's just it. it I, I just think it's, it's interesting that when we're younger right when we're in school certainly like in high school and even in college, right? Like friendships are so central to how we spend our time and, um, you know, whatever joy or satisfaction we get out of the goal. And yet I think that's as, or even more true um, late, much later in life. And yet I don't think we make the necessary investments along the way necessarily that set ourselves up for success. And I'm trying to resist that and avoid that again with varying degrees of success, but it's something I think a lot about.
0: You're going back to something you were talking about earlier, you were talking about um, uh, you know difficult decisions that you've grappled with. And something I'm curious about for you: um, what was a decision that you made that you're not sure you got right? There's a decision you made that said, you know, uh, I could have gone one way, I could have gone another. I went this way, uh, but I'm not sure I made the right call.
1: Yeah. I Well, I'll, I'll start with a professional example. Um, I don't know for sure whether um, it was, quote unquote, the right call or the best call that I made when I left the bench in 2016, in large part because I was so happy doing that work. And there just was a unique satisfaction in seeing the tangible results of my of my labor day in and day out, right? I could see individual parties in my courtroom. And these weren't like, you know, the big fancy tech companies or others that, you know, a lot of people associate with my time on the bench. These are just regular people in court for either the first time or the hundredth time. And you know, when I made a decision and it was the right decision, it was incredibly gratifying to see that look on their face. Um, and you know, would that satisfaction have only increased or grown had I stayed on the bench? I don't know. And you know would that have ultimately been more meaningful to me than whatever else I've been able to accomplish? You know, since I left the court at Facebook or here at coinbase I don't know so um, you know I think that will always be an open question but you know I don't tend to be someone who dwells on it only because like in many ways those are unknowable questions right you just the answers are are never going to be completely revealed and fortunately for me you know there are many other things I have been able to accomplish instead that would not have been possible had I had I stayed in that role you know a personal example that I think a lot about is, that you know, when I um, grew up in the Midwest in the 70s and 80s, I grew up in a very small town in Northeast Ohio, a place I'm very proud um, you know, to be from. I, I felt compelled that I had to go away for school. And then even though I returned briefly um, at the start of my legal career to clerk for a judge, I felt I had to move to California to pursue my professional dreams. And you know, a part of me thinks a lot about you know the implications of that decision on you know the ways i've been able to spend time with my family and you know the connections i felt to my local community as you know as as i've essentially been living this immigrant life in california now for 20 plus years i've never really felt at home here so i think a lot about you know those choices um as well and yet you know i think if you dwell on them too long i think it's important to be reflective but i think if you dwell on them you ultimately end up Right, back, right where you started, having traveled in a big, large circle, because you know there's really no way to know the answer to it. I think you know it's just much more productive and satisfying to think about what you've been able to do and accomplish that wouldn't have been possible had you not made that choice.
0: Well, it's funny because last time I saw you, we were at a conference. And you're in like workout gear. You're the chief legal officer of a uh, uh, highly uh, there's a a tech company with a major regulatory component. You know, just so the bleeding edge of of uh, tech and financial issues. And so it's very funny to me to hear you say that you feel out of place in California. So tell me me some more about that.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, um, I've been now living here in California for roughly 25 years. Um, I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere else. And yet, like I think a lot of immigrants feel, um, even though you may have spent decades in a place, if you're not of that place and from that place, you sometimes feel a bit like... um, An interloper or a visitor or an outsider in some way and that's as true for me here in the silicon valley as as anyone else i appreciate that um i present in a way that suggests i have overcome you know those obstacles but you know in my heart of hearts i'm still a little indian kid growing up in a small town in ohio rooting for the cleveland browns and um finding no greater joy than you know friday nights at uh our local pizza place after a little league baseball game. That's still how I think of myself and what I see of myself. when I look in the mirror every morning. Um, It's not, you know, some guy trying to like, you know, solve the world's cryptocurrency problems (laughs) or fight the latest tech fight as a chief legal officer.
0: Well, this, so you've met my wife a couple of times and she's got a question Mm -hmm. for you that I think is good. Look, you're, you're, you're in California at this, you know, this uh, crypto company, uh, there's got to be something that's woo woo about the guy. There's something woo woo about him. So what is what is it? What's the most woo woo thing
1: about you? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I hate to disappoint her. I'm a pretty dull guy in many ways. Um, I don't know. I suppose it's a it's a little off base for me that um, you know I uh, you know I I don't. Um, shy away from the, the, the darker corners of the internet <laughs> in terms of, you know, in my professional job, um, especially in cryptocurrency, I have to spend a lot of time on Twitter. I've spent a lot of time on Discord. I have to spend a lot of time in subreddits. And as, as many of, of your listeners will know, um, those, those um, portals can take you to some very crazy dark places, particularly in terms of conspiracy theories and, um, you know, all kinds of rank speculation about who's running the world and what's the secret government behind the government. And um, well, I've never really uh, subscribed to many of those theories. I am drawn to a good conspiracy theory, so maybe that's something I, 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 I can confess on this podcast that uh, not a lot of people would guess about me. What's one?
0: What's a conspiracy
1: theory you can't shake? Oh gosh. Well, I'm. I've always been interested in um, the idea that extraterrestrial life exists um and that our government has had a strong interest in managing that narrative for its own purposes now i don't necessarily believe that there are you know skeletons or specimens of little green men in the desert in new mexico um there were some recent congressional hearings about this that i found fascinating but do i believe that extraterrestrial life exists absolutely and um would it surprise me or shock me to learn that if there was, you know, contact with that extraterrestrial life, that um, one or more world governments would you know, being incented or inclined to try to cabin or limit, you know, our understanding or knowledge of that? No, I wouldn't be. So maybe that's something I'm, I'm a little woo-woo about. Yeah, I mean, you know that
0: that that is interesting. Cause I, I fully, I'm fully blind to all the premises that you just laid out there. My only question is, you know is what is there obviously by definition, if something, if a government, if anybody is hiding something by definition, you don't know what's being hidden from you. Um, But, you know, of course over time, some things leak out, right. Some things leak out of some kind, you know, one secret are no longer secret. You know, the Tuskegee experiment, these kinds of things were once secrets and then, you know, but I I feel like there's just like, uh, you know, this using this, like say, physics or chemistry metaphor of an equilibrium where if something is just that there's such a strong um density of something on one side and a vacuum with the other side it's gonna it's gonna find its way out right if there's something that's yeah. so potent uh it's just it's just too powerful a thing to keep hidden there's just too much incentive for any individual to break from that because there's such a huge payoff to that so what is some precedent that where we where where you know, we've seen that breakdown or, or if you haven't, how can you, how can you make sense of the most incredible, like if someone was sitting on the information, the unbelievable incentive and motivation you would to tell everyone, here's the craziest thing.
1: There's extraterrestrials and, and, and uh, yeah, well, I, I would say a couple of things. One is, um, I'm not necessarily saying this is probable. I am saying it's plausible it's, and most definitely possible. Um, and I think the other thing is that, uh, you know, um, when it comes to extraterrestrial life, as one example, right? Um, I think again, like, yes, it's possible. It, it, it's 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 highly um, unlikely that um, any small group of people could keep the secret. Um, but what I do think is equally true is that, um, you know, as, as you highlighted with a couple of examples, you know. Um, human beings have kept some pretty dark things quiet for a very long time until they weren't. And, um, you know, without, without being too morbid about it, I think there are plenty of examples, even in our recent history in the 20th century, where things that seemed utterly implausible, um, were kept secret for a fairly long period of time and and then were revealed. And so, um, all that I am saying is that, um, we shouldn't dismiss entirely the possibility that, um, you know, there are other beings out there and, um, Certain people on Earth are aren't necessarily, aren't necessarily uh, incented to want to make that as publicly known as it should be. How's that for woo woo? That
0: that 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 satisfies woo woo. I think I um, <laughs> really satisfy that. That's woo woo. Um, well, look, you, you really love luring, so I don't want to to miss out on that. But um, so I want to pick up on that shortly. But you mentioned social media, so we can start from there. Uh, so tell me, you know, you're you're highly active on social media. You you've got like fifty thousand followers on Twitter, something like twenty five, more than twenty five on on LinkedIn. So large social media following. Um, and that's I think probably uh, you were active on social media before you joined Coinbase, but certainly I think it exploded as a result of of that. So tell me about you know I think so many lawyers are very averse to being active on social media. Particularly, I think uh, somebody who I I think another lawyer who is in a company that faces such regulatory scrutiny might be even more averse to to having a public face and just you know making sure that every minutiae is 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 uh, adequately messaged um, and lawyered. So tell me about, you know, I, I know risk has been a, a, a running theme, and so maybe that's just, that's the simple answer, but tell me about the decision to be so active on social media and, uh, you know, what
1: does it do for you? What do you get out of it? Well, my, uh, you know, my appetite and interest in social media goes back well before my time here at Coinbase. Um, I After all, it did work for a social media company of some repute for several years, immediately before I came over to uh, this company. Um, but even before Facebook, um, when I was a sitting judge in a federal district court, I was on social media. I had a modest Twitter account. Um, I was certainly posting a lot on Facebook itself um, and, and and elsewhere. And it was largely because I, I was just, again, curious and interested in how these new technologies could reach different audiences and allow you to have a, a different kind of voice Um, then maybe it was possible just before that. Um, So, you know, when I came to Coinbase, um, I was certainly well aware that the cryptocurrency community tended to thrive on Twitter, on Reddit, in Discord channels, and elsewhere. And so um, it just, I think, was quite natural for me to look to those channels when trying to, Explain what it was we were doing here at the company, how I thought about um, the law and how the law applied to what was happening in crypto, and so it was just a very um, you know, obvious and natural place. And at the same time, you know, I I've tried to share a bit about sort of how I think about the practice of law and the profession in, in a way that goes well beyond just you know, my particular industry because I do think that. There is um, an interesting conversation to be had out there among lawyers about how you navigate some of these challenges that you and I have been talking about or, or you know, just deal with the day-to-day struggles of the job. And so um, I have, again, found that um, by sharing sort of how I've looked at things or 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 lessons that I've learned, um, certain people have found it, you know, useful, interesting in their own work or in their own lives, and, and that's very gratifying. Um, but mostly, you know, it's... It's not some grand you know, plan on my part. It's mostly just about me wanting to spread the word about what we're doing here at Coinbase, um, encourage other lawyers to think about their you know, professional journeys in, in ways that maybe they haven't before, and you know, maybe even just kill a little time while I'm brewing my coffee in the morning and there's nobody in my house to talk to because my, my children and my wife have, have, have left for the day and I just I need some other person to, or group of people to communicate with.
0: Why is it important to message, you know, you, you, you have an outlet for, you know, if there's changes you need, you need the SEC to make, a, to, 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 to consider something or a court to consider something. You have outlets for that. Why is it important for the
1: public or the crypto community to be bought in? Because these are ultimately public institutions, um, you know, whether it's the Securities and Exchange Commission or the Department of Justice or any other part of our government, they are ultimately there to serve the public interest. At least, you know, that's my perhaps somewhat naive view of how government's supposed to work. And um, just as I think it's critical that people understand what it is their government is doing or not doing in their name, I think it's just as important that these institutions understand what the people that they purport to serve think about these issues. And, you know, for all of its flaws and, and even risks and dangers, I think social media offers a very powerful and unique way. To kickstart that conversation. And, you know, I'm certainly well aware of all the ways in which that conversation has taken off in unproductive and even harmful directions. But in my experience, where I'm like, day in and day out, I have a wonderful, you know, um, experience and incredibly valuable conversations when I engage on Twitter, or I post on LinkedIn, or whatever the case may be. And I think that as a result of that, and you know, also the contributions of many, many more people that go far beyond just me, I think we have a much more informed conversation happening right now about the legal issues in in crypto, uh, about the legal profession that we all work in, and I think that's a generally a good thing. Mm-hmm. And has there been any, you know,
0: sa- same question that I've asked you about these different roles? You, you had an expectation for things you learn or relationships you make? what were surprises along the way? Like what's something that you've, you've been surprised to learn about in the course of being active in social media and and building such a large following or, you know, the people that you've met along the way.
1: Well, I don't know if I was surprised by it, but I've been delighted by the fact that particularly when it comes to um, the legal issues that we are confronting right now in crypto, whether it's securities law issues, issues involving um, sanctions, whatever the case may be that, so many good ideas come from people who I don't think um, in an offline conversation would be given, you know, the time of day by most other lawyers, right? It, you know, there's an old trope on, on the internet that when you're on the internet, nobody knows that you're a dog, right? (laughs) Like there's a, there's a famous New Yorker cartoon to that effect. And I just love the fact that like most of the people who I pay the most attention to on the, on Twitter, on Reddit and elsewhere, are people whose backgrounds I don't even know. And frankly, I don't even care about. I don't particularly um, weigh very heavily what law school somebody went to when it comes to debating the right way to think about you know, the meaning of an investment contract under the 1933 securities, for example. I just want a, a clever idea or a different way to think about the problem. And you know, particularly in law, where we are so um, bound to traditional ways of weighing and evaluating the worth of someone's Contribution, right? Where'd you go to school? Who'd you clerk for? What firm have you worked at? Is the company you work for a Fortune 100 company, or is it a company I've never heard of? Like, those are all signals that have some value in certain situations, but for the most part, they have nothing to do with is the thing that you're saying smart. Do you have a good idea? Um, Is you know your comment something I should be paying attention to? And I love the fact that in an online space. the ideas tend to be at the center of you know, how we value you know, people's contributions. And I just love that because more often than not, I get really good ideas or a different way to think about a particular legal issue that I'm, I'm wrestling with from individuals uh, who I suspect um, wouldn't, wouldn't garner a lot of attention in traditional places and spaces in the law. And I think that's awesome. I just feel like that's a much fairer, and perhaps more interesting way to operate and way to live. And so that that's as much as anything that has surprised me about my experience talking about law and talking about crypto on social.
0: Are there groups of lawyers, are, are there niches of lawyers uh, where all lawyers should, you know, what are reasons to become more active on social media for for most lawyers? You're in a unique position. Uh, you know, there's a there's a key benefit to messaging around these topics. Uh these topics are are you know, the, uh, these topics are at the bleeding edge, they're changing, they're relevant to a lot of people. Um, and, and so maybe you're in a very distinct position and then also the chief legal officer. Um, but so short of that, you know, short of that unique set of circumstances, does it make sense for more people to be involved in social media? Is there, is there a profile in your mind of the kind of person who should be lawyer,
1: who should be more active on social media? Well, I know, mean, I'm not, I'm not one to tell anybody else what to do or how to do it. I will say that, um, you know the the first rule I generally tend I try to apply when I think about how I communicate with others, whether it's on social media or anywhere else is do I have something interesting to actually to say, right? Like I'm sort of one of my pet peeves about lawyers um, um, on social, but also um, in communicating more generally is that more often than not they sort of skip past the do I have something interesting to say question and, and focus on how do I say it. Um, so I think you know, that is where I would begin and urge others to begin. And then I think that at the same time, and this touches you know, upon something I was saying earlier, I think sometimes as lawyers, we presume that what we know or what we do is utterly uninteresting to anyone other than ourselves. Um, and the fact of the matter is, you know, there's something interesting happening in just about every lawyer I know's lives every day. And the only question is how can you package it and present it in a way that's compelling and interesting to others, um, even if they have no idea what it is you do or how you do it. Right. So that's the piece I think that sometimes people miss. Right. It's they either present that it's interesting to everyone, or they don't take even a brief moment to think about how do I present and frame this in a way that is compelling. And I think the best way to um, do that is something again that you and I talked about earlier, which is. You know, when, when we were talking earlier about the best trial lawyers and what makes them so effective in court and a key element of their toolkit being curation and deciding what not to say and what not to argue, I think that's just as true for social. Um, less is generally more. And I think a lot of lawyers, too many lawyers, when they try to engage with social, try to accomplish too much or say more than they have to instead of just really focusing on what it is that is compelling and interesting and whatever it is that they do.
0: You know, I, I think also it, it sounds like the the story of Coinbase and what it's looking to do is, is essential. And I think, um, of, of course, it's been common for common or maybe not common, but valued uh, among high performing tech companies um, are companies where founders are um, have a clear message. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I think that's something that Paul Graham has underscored for a number of years uh, is the storytelling component and base uh, yeah. and, and, and others are, are are I think influenced by Paul Graham uh, in that way uh, or or in that sphere of influence. So tell me about you know lawyers of course litigators are natural storytellers, uh, but you know in the course of being at this you know this cutting edge company that's got a story to tell, uh, in in you know flexing your muscles on social media. What is it about storytelling that you've learned? What are storytelling principles
1: that you've learned? Oh, gosh. I think that um, a couple of things have just become clearer to clear to me you know, over time. And this is true whether it's you know, a LinkedIn post. This is true whether it's a closing argument in a federalistic court trial or anything you know, in between. Um, I think the most, element, the most important elements of a, of a great story are the people, the characters. It's less about what they do or even how they do it and much more about who they are and ultimately why they have made the choices that they've made. And again, this doesn't have to be some you know great piece of literature that we're talking about. This could literally be four lines in a tweet. Um, I think focusing on the people generally tends to make for a much better story than anything else. I think another element of storytelling that's super important is to try not to accomplish too much, again, focusing on the notion of curation. Um, there doesn't have to be a grand unifying point or theory necessarily to a great story but there does have to be a point. <laughs> um, and so I think sometimes um, people who struggle with storytelling overlook the fact that you should be able to answer the question so what is the point whether it's about a tweet, you know a novel or, or anything else that you might compose. And I suppose one other you know, element of storytelling that I try to focus on is um, am, I, am I offering something new or fresh? you know, as compared to what I've said before, or what others are saying, because I do think that, um, you know, as humans, we are, we are wired to the novel, right? We are are always looking for um, the next thing. And so, you know, rehashing or repeating points or narratives um, that have been, you know, made or laid out over and over again before also, I think, tends to take a pretty good story and turn it into a not so interesting story pretty quick.
0: And I also want to go back to something you're saying about um, you know, that you're not, you, you don't look to tell people what to do. Uh, and I, I fully appreciate that. Um, but I'm curious for you. I mean, I feel like there's there's so many, um, there's recurring, in the practice of law, there's like recurring um, scenarios that lawyers find themselves in, and especially for the reasons that you identified where, you know, so much about the legal training in law school within the practice of law is conforming and then uh, standardizing and so then you have these kind of averaging effects um so i think that makes it for the reasons you identified all the more challenging for people at key junctures of their career to make decisions i think you know you know all the canonical key junctures that people are at uh you know one is your mid-level associate who says i don't know if i want to keep on, you know, the practice here I'm in. And uh, I don't know if I want to make part of my firm. I don't know if I want to go in-house. I don't know if I want to do something completely different. I'm sure you get, you know, run to people like this all the time. Um, You know, what do you, how, what what do you say to someone and recognize it's not necessarily advice, but maybe questions you're asking. What do you say to someone to help them sort through that? How do you help someone sort through, through that canonical issue that a lot of smart people find themselves in?
1: Well, gosh, there's all kinds of advice out there on this topic. So applying my own um, standard that I just articulated a moment ago, maybe maybe I'll focus on what maybe a slightly different take I have on this. The number one thing I ask someone who comes up to me with that kind of question is, forget about what you want, forget about what you enjoy. What are you really good at? Like if I ask 10 of your friends or, or five of your professional colleagues, what's the number one thing you think of when you think of this person in terms of what they really, really excel at, what are they going to tell me? What are they going to tell you? And I start with that because, again, this is just sort of the way I've thought about my professional career. I have found that being really, really good at something in the practice of the law tends to be pretty satisfying, even if it's not necessarily that something that I particularly enjoy or aspire to. And so um, it's not the be all and end all to, I think, you know, the very important and hard questions that, you, that, that, you know, I, I do get asked and that people, I think, confront for themselves in their own careers over and over again. But really being candid and honest about what you're good at, I think, is something that a lot of lawyers overlook. Because I think a lot of us imagine us to be very good at certain things we're not actually very good at and completely overlook or ignore, you know, areas where we are extremely talented and accomplished, but, you know, are so second nature to us that we don't really focus on. Um that's, that's a, maybe a, a different way I, I I look at that question than, than some other people. I really like that. So
0: now I'm going to apply it to you. But sure. you through two audiences. So okay. you, as you said, you like associating with lawyers and you've you've got plenty of contact with lawyers. Um, what do you think the lawyers in your life would say for you? What is
1: it that Paul Graywell is particularly good at? I think I am quite good at managing chaos and dealing with emotional overload in moments of crisis. I think that was true when I was in a courtroom and a defendant had an outburst or um, a, a witness broke down on the witness stand or where a juror would lie to my face about why they couldn't serve and it turned out that wasn't true. I think that was true in my law firm life when junior or mid-level associates would suddenly break down or not show up for work or walk out in the middle of trial, all the things of which have happened to me. I certainly think that's true in my current role at Coinbase, where as the chief legal officer, every single day um, I am confronted with some completely out of left field crisis, either at the company or in the industry as a whole. And, you know, my first instinct is to pause to figure out what needs to be done, as we talked about earlier, and to focus on the here and now and deal with the emotional aftermath, you know, only after we, 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 we resolve the situation or put, or put something to rest. I think those um, experiences that talent is probably what I'm best at relative to my peers. Um, as much as you know, my ability to write, my ability to speak, my ability to think about legal issues, that sort of thing.
0: Okay. That's good. Uh, and then I want, I want, and that, that definitely ties into running themes you've been talking about, about, you know, those, those are notable moments, like stepping into the magistrate judge role is, is managing the, the emotions. That was a key part of your role. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but now I'll switch, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, ask a question sure. in context. So what would you know? Now you report to a board of directors, and you know these are these are people like you know Mark Andreessen, Fred Wilson, Toby Ludka. You know people that are successful software entrepreneurs, VCs. They are. Um, so what would that audience say? Is your is your
1: alpha your expertise? Um, I would hope that that audience would say that. Um, I am uniquely able to identify paths forward and avoid being sucked into the classic lawyer's posture of, we can't do this, we shouldn't do that, there's no way around X, we're never going to get past Y. I think I'm able to identify paths forward that may not have been immediately or readily apparent to others. and. I think my direct my board would would call that as much as anything else that I do. I hope they would.
0: And now, like with looking at that board, what have you learned from them? What have you learned about how do they approach decisions uh, differently than skillful lawyers, jurists? You know, what what can we learn from 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 that group? Because you know, fewer of us as lawyers have contact with people in those roles, and yeah. we have had a lot of success. You know, in, in, in different domains require different kinds of
1: decision criteria, but what can we learn as lawyers from that group of people? What have you learned? Yeah, the the self-made um, founder tech billionaire is definitely a, um, a species that I have much more familiarity with than I ever would have guessed when I graduated from law school in 1996. Um, that's certainly been the case here at Coinbase. You've mentioned several of our board members. Obviously, our CEO, Brian Armstrong, who also serves on the board, gets that bill. Um, Mark Zuckerberg, my previous role, I think, also qualifies on that score. One thing I've learned from working with all of these people, uh, and they're very different from one another, they're not uniform by any stretch, but they do share certain qualities, is that um, they are insatiably curious. They generally um, have to know why something is happening as much as what is happening or what needs to be done about it. That curiosity is something that is extraordinary. Um, They are certainly all Fearless in that, you know, these are all people with lots to lose on any given day. Um, And yet they are very comfortable um, taking outsized risks when they are convinced that they are right. And then the last thing I will say is I think that a lot of people have a somewhat stereotypical image of that type of successful person as being rapacious or indifferent and even hostile to um the people around them or the people who are impacted by what they do and that just hasn't been my experience um over and over again i have been impressed that you know the people that i've worked with who sort of um did that, that bill that you just described really do care deeply about the wider world and what kind of world they're going to leave behind when they leave and you know i can appreciate there may be some skepticism or, uh, around that um And these are not saints by any stretch. Um, They're just as human as the rest of us. But um, there is a, um, you know, I think a a genuine, um, not just interest, but commitment to, uh, you know, figuring out a way to to do interesting things in this life and lead the world a, a better place that I don't think always gets understood when we look at these captains of industry making these grand decisions that impact billions of people. So that's something I've seen.
0: I'm trying to trace, you know, with all the things that you've learned so far. I'm trying to trace, you know, there's there's these data points for, you know, what makes what 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 makes Paul make a move. You know, what what is it that Paul is looking to level up on? And I, I think extrapolating from here, um, you know, it's it, it, you're already in a, you're in the chief legal officer role at a company that's had a lot of success financially and um, you know and, and that's you know benefited you personally, and so um, so I think that dimension sounds pretty seems pretty sound um, you know, you're working on cutting like cutting edge legal issues, it'd be hard to imagine something that would be more at the forefront of you know public disputes with you know a a regulatory body and and trying to be on the side of what you think is right um so it would be hard to top that it'd be hard to top you know what what company could give you? you know, uh, more challenging, uh, legal objectives to attain, uh, or compensate you or reward you in some way, you know, more significantly for that. So I, I feel like that's gotta be hard to top. So it's gotta be something else. Right. Uh, and, and so maybe, you know, obviously it would be like, you know, flexibility. Maybe, maybe, you know, you, you, you worked as hard as sure. you can. I suspect that's not true. You're a very spry 51 year old. So, uh, uh, no, I don't. 52 I don't think as of, of yet. 52
1: as the day before yesterday, just to be clear. Yeah. Turn it off. Okay.
0: Um, so it can't be that. So uh I wonder if the answer is, you know, maybe it's something along the lines uh of impact. Um, so that, you know, I think that's the thing. Is if there's anything that seems like close to regret, uh, if you want to put it that way, it's you know, looking back and saying, what well, what would a life in the judiciary been? Because you know, the range of impact you could have on society uh is very stark. So it could be something that generates a lot of impact. Um, I don't have an answer, so I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna speculate. But I'll, I'll ask you this instead. Um, you know, I've observed that there's certain, um, you know, GCs, chief legal officers, or 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 you know, even law firm partners who who um, have had a lot of success in what they do, but then taken on these non legal roles. So I, I saw, you know, recently Jason Kwan of OpenAI moved into the chief strategy officer role at Open OpenAI. OpenAI. Um, And then you've got uh, Gordon Moody, who just moved
1: into the chief product officer of Harvey, uh, a legal uh, AI startup. Um, Brad Smith at Microsoft, former GC, is now the president. There are, I think, many examples like that, for sure.
0: There there certainly are examples. uh, Maybe you're familiar with so many that you can call them many. Um, but so I'm curious, you know, what would it take for you to make that attractive for you or, or what do you think it makes it attractive, uh, for, or, or is it a path that more lawyers should consider?
1: Yeah, I, I think lawyers should definitely consider it. Um, because I think that a lot of what makes people really effective as lawyers, um, would, would serve them extraordinarily well and make them just as effective or more effective in other roles, whether it's serving as a chief administrative officer, a CEO, a president or something outside of the law or, or corporate life altogether. Um yeah, you know, for me, um, you know, that, that might be something in, in my future. I don't know. I think though that like less important than the title or sort of the you know the the organization um it, it is, is the, the problem set and and this and the collection of challenges that you know I would have uh, an opportunity to engage with in, in that kind of opportunity or with that kind of opportunity. I just think that, um, you know, one of the things that um, I really am proud of as, as a member of the legal profession, and I think a lot of lawyers are really, really excellent at it, is dealing with uncertainty, um, orienting to, you know, problems where there is no obvious answer being able to reason from first principles. I just think these are all tremendously valuable skills that lawyers develop each and every day, no matter what kind of practice you have, and it could serve them very well in other roles that go well beyond the law. So, um, you know, I, I do think though, that like to be successful in that type of different opportunity, any lawyer would have to, again, be willing to shed their own skin a little bit, um express and generally embrace a certain degree of humility that there are lots of things out there that we don't know. Um, And also just sort of, you know, get be excited by, you know, by the fact that you're doing something very different from what you've done before, as opposed to being intimidated by it or turned off by it. Um, I think, you know, if you have sort of that mix of perspectives and attitudes, I think, as a lawyer, you could do very well in any of the other roles, and of course, we haven't even talked about all the things outside of, as I said, corporate life, where I think lawyers bring a lot of unique experiences and attributes that um, could 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 lead to some amazing success.
0: Uh, it would be hard to think of a better point to stop at than that. I feel like that's a really good summary of themes in your life and in your career. So, and, and uh, yeah, that's a that's a that's a great place to stop right there. Awesome. Well, Paul, thanks for taking time.
1: Happy belated birthday. Thank you. I appreciate it. This was a fun conversation. I appreciate your, uh, your having me on. I've enjoyed it.